we have come to the end, the end of Job, the end of sovereign suffering. Crazy to think, huh? This is going to be our last message in the book, and uh, we began this series a little over two years ago on uh, June 7th of 2020, right at the kind of the peak of the COVID deal. I think we might have started this series here and then did it at my, from my house for a while. I don't remember exactly how it went down, but um, it's, it's been a couple of years, and we did take quite a few breaks in between, if you recall. Um, we did tackle some important subjects like the biblical family, the doctrines of grace. We actually paused to celebrate a few holidays in between, and we even made our way through the book of Galatians which was almost six months in and of itself. So it's not that we've taken two years to walk through Job. It's We took two years to walk through Job because we did a lot of other stuff. Um, we actually, this would be the 53rd sermon in the book, and uh, which seems like a lot, but, uh, you know, you got 42 chapters, so few more sermons than, than chapters in the book. Uh, and then I thought, well, I wonder what others have done in the book of Job. You know, how long did others spend time in it? And uh, Calvin preached 159 sermons in Job. So uh, those kinds of stats keep me humble. I mean, that's like exhaustive. And there, there may have never been a more exhaustive uh, expositor than Calvin. Uh, he just left no stone unturned in God's Word now, God's cross-examination of Job is recorded in chapters 38 through 41. You know, this is where God speaks to Job finally after a long period of silence and Job interacting with his friends, and then God starts to speak, but it's really a cross-examination. This is like Job's, I don't know, it's his day in divine court, so to speak. And uh, in chapter 38... God basically declared His sovereign rule over man, over earth, over sea, over the underworld, over light, over snow, lightning, rain, ice, space, the clouds. In chapter 39, God declared His sovereign rule over a bunch of animals or the animal kingdom, but specifically the lion, the raven, the goat, the doe, the donkey, ox, ostrich, horse, hawk, and the eagle. And then in chapters 40 to 41 in this cross-examination, God challenges Job to demonstrate that he possessed seven attributes that are needed to run and rule over the universe because that's what Job was implying. Hey, you're not doing a very good job, God, so I think I ought to take the keys and run the universe. And God challenges him, do you have these, can you demonstrate that you have these uh, particular um, these attributes that you'll need, and that would be omniscience, omnipotence, sovereign authority, deity, uh, which is really more about personhood, perfect justice, judgment, and then obviously sovereign control, and then the examples that God used. Job, if you're going to run the universe, you need to be able to control things in a sovereign way. Can you sovereignly control two of the most dangerous, deadliest, terrifying beasts ever made by me, the behemoth and then the Leviathan, and I thought the Leviathan made the behemoth look like a chihuahua, uh, but that's basically what we've been studying, what we've been looking at. And then as we transition into this final chapter, 
just before we start getting into it, we need to know that this hard-hitting cross-examination, it did finally decimate Job's foolish pride, his sense of entitlement, and the ridiculous things that he was saying, his attitude toward God, which I think we would all agree is understandable if you've gone through such tremendous suffering. It's not justifiable, but you can understand how someone would have a hard time a believer might have a hard time with God if they're going through such things. So this cross-examination in these handful of chapters just blew Job apart. Uh, it brought him to the end of himself. And in the final chapter, that's what we will see. And uh, it's actually probably of all the chapters in Job, of all the 42 chapters, this is probably the most straightforward least poetic, easiest to understand chapter. It's very, very practical, very straightforward. And I, I see three R's here, three things, and they're R's, and this is how we'll wrap it up. And uh, so if you could, I don't know if you're there, if you could turn over to Job 42. We're going to look at the whole chapter. It's just 17 verses. We're going to pick it up where we left off last week and start with our first R. And what we're going to look at right out of the gate is obviously Job's repentance. This is what we see. After a long, hardcore cross-examination, we see Job's repentance. This is recorded in verses 1 through 6. We'll start at verse 1. It says, Then Job answered the Lord and said... You can stop right there. So Job has not spoken during the cross-examination. Uh, up at the, at the front of it, he said something about vowing silence, and he literally kept silent through the whole thing. So this is the first time he's spoken in like four chapters here. Then Job answered the Lord and said, So having been shown the divine power and majesty and creation by God Himself, God is in the whirlwind before Job, and we saw this in chapters 38 to 41, Job is completely overwhelmed, he's humbled, he's broken, he's overwhelmed, and then he now replies to the Lord, to the cross-examination. And what we'll see is that he repents, he humbles himself, he repents before the Almighty, he has a broken and contrite spirit, he's broken on the inside. And uh, basically what we see here is that, and this is what repentance really is, it's, it's a, it's a, not just a turning in direction, but coming to a new realization and appreciation of God or for God. And that is exactly what we see in the verses that follow. Job, I think, was a respecter and believer in God's sovereignty, but not at this level. Now he, he grasps this truth about God, this reality, this attribute of God. He grasps it in a new way, in a way that he couldn't have prior to his suffering. So in this repentance, we will see some sanctification. He's saying things now that he understands now that he didn't understand before. And so there's a lot of value in his suffering, if you can believe it. Now we go to verse 2. This is the very first thing he says, I, God, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You stop there. Job sees in a way that he hadn't before. He sees and receives and understands that God's purposes are supreme above all else. This is something that he grasped prior to his suffering, but now it's something that he fully grasps. And he confesses that, 
essentially what he's saying and confessing is that God can do whatever he wants and always does whatever he wants, whenever he wants. And he acknowledges that God's sovereign purposes are supreme in that nothing in all creation, anything at all, can even thwart or stop or hinder or end his purposes. He can do anything, anytime, whenever he wants, according to his timeline, and nothing can stop it. So this is a, this is a repentance that we see in a confession. This is a, a change in attitude, because if you recall through all of his speeches, he was basically telling God, you cannot do this to me, because I am a righteous man, and these things don't happen to righteous men, so you cannot do these things to me. Now he's saying, through a whole process of cross-examination, I was wrong, you can do whatever you want, whenever you want, and obviously I couldn't stop you, meaning nobody can stop you. This is a confession from him here. And what he did was he, he embraced, and, and he, I, I have to say he returned to it a little bit because he understood this at the beginning, but not at this level, but he really kind of embraces and returns to really what I would call the most fundamental truth in all theology. And that is that God rules over all. That is, that is the most fundamental, baseline, foundational truth to all biblical theology, that God is absolutely sovereign and that He rules over all. If, if we don't understand this, we're not going to be able to comprehend His salvation, His sovereignty in salvation, His sovereignty in suffering, His sovereignty in anything. And so this is a fundamental baseline truth in theology that God rules over all. And now Job is all in. He is all in. He's putting all his cards on the table. I'm betting it all on God's absolute rule over all because I have now seen that in my own life and I now acknowledge it and confess that. Implied in this bold declaration by Job was a new submission to the God whose eternal purposes cannot be resisted or altered. Thus, it was totally insane for Job to question the Lord's decrees and actions in the first place. Verse 3, uh, Job says this, Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? That's a question that he's asking to God or a recitation a repeating of something that God said. And then he says, Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Job actually quotes God here. It's the initial rebuke God sent Job's way in chapter 38, verse 2, when Job said, or God said to Job, Who is this that, that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? By citing these words from God, Job confessed his own guilt. He had spoken wrongly about God and thus had darkened divine counsel with his own ignorant words. He confessed that he had said things which were beyond his ability to process and comprehend. He calls them things too wonderful for me to know. Prior to this moment, uh, prior to this moment God's ways were pretty disturbing to Job, right? I mean, once the suffering came in, he was kind of disturbed by God's sovereignty and these sorts of things. But, but now these difficult truths about God's sovereignty and Him doing what He wants at all times, these 
truths that were too wonderful for him to really comprehend and understand, these truths that he was challenging, they've now become, this is repentance, they've now become wonderful to his soul. The things that he may have challenged and despised about God that were just above his pay grade, he now fully embraces and calls wonderful. That's what you're reading here. That's what you're seeing. Now, the cross-examination, I think we would all agree, right? You can nod your head. It was pretty stern, right? It was. You know, 38 through 41, those chapters, that's pretty hardcore, you know, and you understand the eagle, you understand the goat. No, you don't understand anything, but let me keep this going, right? I mean, it's pretty stern. It's pretty hardcore. I think we would even call it sarcastic in some places, humiliating in some places, uh, and we would probably couch that with totally necessary, amen? But we would say that the, the cross-examination was stern. But I can tell you this because I know God. It was delivered in kindness. It was delivered in kindness. And this helps to explain this dramatic change in Job's attitude. Not to take anything away from the Holy Spirit, who is the one that gives us a new heart and softens our hearts, but there is an attribute or a behavior of God that lends to repentance, and it is called kindness, because it is the kindness of God that leads us or leads those to repentance. Amen? That's Romans 2, 4. And so, so the, the cross-examination is, is, is pretty heavy. It is sarcastic in some ways. It is humiliating for Job. And I think it was a bit terrifying because of how it's delivered from a whirlwind. I don't really care to ever test that out. I don't know about you, but, uh, you know, I'm cool. I don't, I don't need God to come like that. So I think it was terrifying. I think it was humiliating and all that. But I think we all know the heart of God toward His children, and that is kindness. And so it's the kindness of the Lord that has helped to aid and lead Job to this realization and to this repentance. And I would say combined with the ministry and work of the Holy Spirit. Verse 4 Job says, here and I will speak, I will question you, and you will make it known to me. So what is Job doing here? He's not saying he's going to, God, you need to listen to me, and I'm going to speak now. He's not saying that at all. He's just quoting what God had said previously. This time he's citing from the very next verse in that, that initial onslaught of rebuke, uh, chapter 38, verse 3, and he's also citing from chapter 40, verse Seven. It's a kind of a combination of things, but he strings it together. And really what he's saying is, God had said this to Job, I will question you and you will make it known to me. You remember when God said that to him, really on two occasions. By citing this pair of statements from God, Job admitted that these divine words had been heard and heeded. Job is saying, you told me, you told me, uh, that you were going to question me, and, and you told me to make things known to you if I was understanding you. And now what Job is saying is, I understood what you said through that whole long, long monologue, in a sense. I, I comprehend, I understand, I'm heeding what you said. That's what Job is saying here. He understood God's authority to demand answers from him. He had sat silently under the scrutiny of God's cross-examination and was basically now ready to answer, not to rebut, right? Now he's ready to give an account because he's being called to not just repentance, but to give an account or to give a response, not to rebut God in any sort of way, which is what he's been doing the whole time. And by quoting God's 
exact words, Job showed that he had carefully listened to and weighed the divine rebuke. So you told me that, that I would need to listen. You told me that I would need to speak up at some point. I, am, I have listened. I am heeding your words. I am now, I, I've heeded your words. Now I'm, I understand your divine rebuke. Now I'm going to speak up is what Job is saying. I hope that's not so confusing, but that's what he's saying. Verse 5, he says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. This is an interesting statement. He's not citing God here. This is coming from him. With deepening repentance, Job is literally confessing that, you know, I had heard of you, I had heard things about you, I, I knew some things about you, but now I see you. Now I know you more intimately. Now I know you in a more deepened way. Through his ordeal, Job had been confronted with a deeper realization of God's wisdom, God's power, God's sovereignty, God's providence. His elementary knowledge of God was now eclipsed by a deeper, more mature understanding of God's divine attributes. What his eyes had seen refers not to like he's literally physically seeing God, like a theophany, that's an appearance of God. What he's talking about here is spiritual insight. He is saying, I knew things about you before. I, I obeyed the law that I understood. I made you know, sacrifices. I love you. I knew you to a degree. But now it's as if my eyes have been opened to you. My ears and my heart have been opened to you. My mind has been opened to you in a new way. Now I, I, I more fully comprehend you, although he doesn't fully comprehend. No one ever will. But I understand who you are more than I did before. That is precisely what he is saying. He now possessed a greater understanding of God's awesome character than he did before his suffering began. Okay, so what is, what is he telling us? That his suffering, his terrible affliction benefited him spiritually, which is the goal always of affliction, always of suffering. It is to take us from an elementary place of understanding to a deeper more experiential knowledge of who God is. God uses suffering to bring us into a greater understanding of who He is and into even greater intimacy with Him. That is what Job is illustrating here. We hate suffering. We hate affliction. We pray for it to go. And I think what God is saying through this text here is, I am not going to take it away because I want you to know me deeper. Why would we pray for God to remove the very thing, the very vehicle, that God will use to transport us from one level of experience with Him to another, from one level of knowledge and understanding to another. Why would we pray for that? You see, so, so often when we're praying for this deliverance from these things, we're, we're, we're actually being counterproductive. We are trying to take us out of the classroom of divine instruction that brings us to a deeper understanding of who He is. This is exactly what Job is teaching us right here. Our affliction is worth it, even though it stinks, even though it hurts, even though it is painful. In this sense, Job's trial had been worth the terrible pain. That's what he's confessing. He is confessing that his spiritual gain outweighed his physical losses. That's what he's saying. That is a statement by a maturing saint. That's what that is. That's what you're reading. Verse 6, and this is, this is it right here. Therefore, 
I, I kind of knew things about you. Now, now I see you more clearly. He doesn't say how wonderful this is and I've been transported from A to Z and, and all these things. Now I'm going to run crazy with this new knowledge. Look what he says in verse 6. Therefore I what? Despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. <laughs> you know, those today, there's people in, in churches today that claim to really know God in an intimate, deep way. And the way they express this knowledge is by running around, creating a harangue by acting like maniacs, drunk in the spirit and all this craziness. When a person comes to a deeper understanding of who God is, they don't, they, 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 they don't get nuts. They don't get crazy. They don't become irreverent. They despise their self because they have been exposed to the holiness of God at a new level. <clears throat> when we are exposed to the holiness of God, we realize our unholiness. And so, you know, the people that are out there in these churches, I don't mean to pick on them, but people are claiming to have these unbelievable experiences with God. And the way they respond to all this is by running around acting nuts with flags or fake tongues or fake prophecies. It's, it's, it's a circus what you see in some churches. And when you, when you study this particular subject, real encounters with God, Paul falls to the ground blind Isaiah says, woe to me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Job is saying, I despise myself. There's no circus. There's no shenanigans. What am I telling you? These people are not encountering God. They are encountering emotionalism. They are hyping themselves up with, with extended guitar solos and everything in the music to hypen themselves up and they're having an adrenal dump. Because when you encounter the true and living God the way Job did, which is the real way, you don't say, oh, I love myself more. Let's fly flags and run around and act like nuts. You are decimated. You are broken. You are shattered because you have been exposed to the true God. That's what we see here. He confesses that he despises himself and he, he doesn't just say it. And he doesn't just think it, but he shows it through dust and ashes. In antiquity, the, the repentant would sometimes hurl dust and ashes into the air so that it would sprinkle down on them and essentially make them filthy. The now filth that they have all over them represented what they're feeling on the inside. And that's what he's doing. He's hurling. He's still sitting on an ash heap, so there's no shortage of ash. He's throwing ash in the... I can't believe what I've been saying. I can't believe what I've done. I can't believe how stupid I've been. And he's throwing the ash in the air and it's landing on him. This is an expression of what he feels on the inside. This hatred of what he's done and who he's been. That's real repentance right here. Real deal repentance. Job hated the self-righteous attitude that he found in his heart through this long cross-examination, right? Because that's what God exposed through those challenges, his own self-righteous attitude, his own pride. He, he now hates the fact that he's been self-righteous and prideful and making these ridiculous demands of God. He, he abhorred his attack on God's flawless character. He'd been attacking his character through the accusations. He, he is renouncing in this very moment with the, the ash and the dust hurling it in the air and it Coming back down on him, he is renouncing his baseless accusations against the Almighty. 
Job was profoundly grieved over his blatant sin, and therefore he repented inwardly and expressed that inward repentance outwardly with the dust and ashes. Lawson said Job had become, quote, a sorrowful, subdued, and submissive man yielded to God with humility. That's what he had become. That is not what he was through all those chapters and speeches. At the very beginning, he kind of was, but he deviated away from that. And now he has returned to this attitude with a new knowledge and a new fervor for God's holiness and a new hatred of his own sin. That, my friends, is true repentance. If we do not hate our sin, there is something defective and wrong in us. There is. Have you ever gotten to the point where you're just like, I, you feel like you don't even want to carry on? I cannot stand the fact that I keep doing this or that I always have this attitude or that I, 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 I always treat others in a certain way or I always blaspheme God by whispering and murmuring curses against Him or I'm always challenging Him. Have you ever been brought to the end of yourself there? That is the true repentance that Job is feeling. And it must be something that we have experienced and will continue to experience because it's not once and done. Now, I think there's certain sins that, that we get ourselves involved in that bring about a greater self-condemnation, right? But sometimes, don't you just get so frustrated with yourself? Man, what is it with this attitude? What is it with this mindset? What is it with this rebellion? And, 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 and then what do you do? Meat grind yourself? No, you cry out to God for mercy. And, and that's essentially what we see here. He's yielding to God now rather than standing, trying to stand up to God, trying to direct God. So that is his, the first R. That's the repentance that we see. It's very clear. In fact, I think you could take those first six verses and use that as a teaching series on the subject of repentance and really just break down each verse and look at all the characteristics of it. It would be really helpful probably. Uh, secondly, the second R is Job's reconciliation, verses 7 to 9. Would we all agree that Job had major problems with his friends at this point? Does he not need to be reconciled to them? Or is this going to be a disastrous relationship the rest of their lives if something isn't done about it? Because they did not treat him well, did they? So we have a reconciliation that we're looking at here between him and his friends. This is represented in verses 7 to 9. We'll start at verse 7. Some of these verses are kind of long. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, and you know Job was absolutely flushed with repentance. It says, the Lord said to Eliphaz, right, that's the primary oldest friend, he's the Temanite, my anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken to me what is right, as my servant Job has. Wow. So this is a full-fledged rebuke of, of the primary or the oldest friend here. He is now getting nuked. Job is not getting nuked anymore. Now it's time for Eliphaz to get nuked. God turns his attention to Eliphaz and the three friends who also needed correction. And he rebuked Eliphaz, the Temanite. He says, I am angry with you and I am angry with your friends. This is a righteous indignation. It's a good anger. And it's, it's essentially some of the things that they had said. Not everything they said because they said good things. But they had said some things that were way off. And this, quite frankly, just ticked God off toward them and especially toward Eliphaz. Now these, as I said, these 
uh, remarks, they are directed primarily at Eliphaz because I think he was the oldest and probably the lead spokesman of the group. Uh, Eliphaz had spoken first in each of the three rounds of speeches, Job chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 15, chapter 22. He was the first guy to speak every time, telling us he's the lead, he's the oldest. And so God goes right after the manager, right? Hold the management accountable here. God was angry uh, because Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar had not spoken what is right concerning God as Job had done. Now, I don't know about you, but that's exactly what the text says, but that's a little challenging for me because I felt like Job had gone off the rails for a while too, right? But Job is not being corrected for things that he said now. He was already corrected for things he had said over the course of several chapters. So God was somewhat impressed with some of the things that Job had said, but he was totally angry with what the other guys had said. And I would say most of what they said about God was true and, and solid. It's not all not that all of their words were inaccurate, only some of their words were inaccurate. In their effort to champion God's justice, they had restricted God's sovereignty. And, and that's not something that God takes lightly. He doesn't like it when we or anyone speak um, in a way that doesn't align biblically with what He's revealed about Himself, but He doesn't like His sovereignty to be challenged at all. And they had done that in a sense. They taught that all suffering is the direct result of personal sin. You know, if I get a sore throat tomorrow, it's because I sinned the day before. This is the way their minds worked. This is the way they thought. Anytime a person was suffering, it was because they were sinning in some sort of way and that, that suffering was a punishment for that sin. The problem is this theology is not always true. I mean, right? It's, it's, you can't always tie suffering to some kind of personal sin, because if that's the case, then Jesus, who suffered more than anyone in the history of the world, must have been the most, the most terrible sinner of all, because He suffered more greatly than anyone else. And what does the Scripture say about Jesus? He was sinless. He was perfect. He never, ever sinned. It says He was without sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21 and Hebrews 4.15, 1 Peter 2.2, 2, 1 John Three, five. There's nothing in the Scripture that would ever indicate that Jesus was a sinner like us. And so you can't say that sin is always the result of someone's personal sin. Sometimes people suffer for righteous reasons. They're doing the right thing, and now they're being persecuted for it. I think we have a wonderful example of that right now with Clarence Thomas. He has written, he wrote, a, him and Alito wrote a statement or a um, uh, we, we would call it a ruling on Roe v. Wade, and that's the right thing to do is to end abortion at the federal level, really at any level, because it, it is a murder in these things, and he does that. And so now Clarence Thomas is an Uncle Tom, and he's every imaginable terrible thing according to some people because he has done the right thing. Now, you may struggle with the idea of abortion being legal or not legal. I think as Christians, we should just hate it and despise it no matter what. But some have argued that the Supreme Court today, SCOTUS, had no right to make this ruling and to basically do away with it at the federal level. Well, if that is true, then SCOTUS had no legal right to make it legal in 73. And the fact of the matter is, the Constitution does not speak to abortion. It does not speak to homosexual marriage. 
The Constitution is being misinterpreted to allow certain things to transpire. The Supreme Court cannot be used for or against these things because the Constitution does not speak to them. And so it, what happened in 73 should have never happened. And what happened last week or two weeks ago should have never happened because it should have never happened in 73. They just took the power back to the states. That's the right way to handle the situation. Point being that those who ruled in favor of getting rid of abortion at the federal level are now being trashed and persecuted. What am I saying? You can be, you can suffer for righteous reasons. You can make a good decision and pay the price for that. If you're following Christ, you're going to have it happen to you all the time. If you're of the world, it's not going to happen to you at all. And so you can suffer for righteous reasons. I think that's what happened with Job. He was a righteous man. God used him in a test. Jesus, righteous, suffered like no one else in history, right? He's without sin. The friends, however, they insisted that Job's suffering was the result of God's judgment against his own personal sin. But Job had not sinned, nor was God judging him. And, and, and this is how they spoke inaccurately concerning God, right? They kept saying to Job, you are under God's judgment, you are suffering because you're hiding sin. They were misrepresenting Job in those statements, and they were misrepresenting God because that was not true from God. So that's why God is angry. You are telling my servant that he is hiding sin, which he is not, and you are persecuting him for that, and you are lying about me. This is why God is angry with them. It makes total, absolute sense. So, this is why God is angry with them. Now, I think we would all agree that Job did act pretty foolishly at times. He did when he accused God of being silent in chapter 33, when he accused God of being unjust in chapter 34, uncaring in chapter 35. You don't seem to be doing anything about anything inactive in chapter 36. And I don't know if you're in control of the situation because my life is spiraling out of control. This is Job's thought in chapter 37. He did have some goofy thoughts and some dumb accusations, but he did not make the same mistake that his friends had made. He didn't. He, Job's area of struggle was different, and I don't think that it was pleasing to God because we had like four straight chapters of total and absolute rebuke, but it's a different issue compared to the friends. He, uh, he spoke the truth. Job spoke the truth when he defended his innocence and insisted that his suffering was not a punishment from God. He was speaking the truth. How could God punish him when he hadn't done anything wrong? He had spoken the truth when he made these points. And this was essentially Job's long, drawn-out argument against the three friends. Job tried to tie his suffering to the things I just mentioned, to God's alleged lack of care and inactivity and so on, not to divine punishment. Why? Because Job knew God had no reason to punish him. He was living right. He was a, a blameless man when his suffering happened. Job spoke truthfully about God in this regard. The friends did not. Okay, so that's the point being made here. And when the friends basically said that God was doing things that he was not doing, that made the Lord angry with them. Now verse 8. Now, therefore, this is God speaking to Eliphaz still. Now, therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. 
for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Wow. So evidently, God saw the behavior of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar as sinful and needing some kind of atonement here. Not only did they mischaracterize God, but they did mistreat God's servant Job, didn't they? To cover their sins, God ordered them to take seven bulls and seven rams to the altar by themselves? No, to Job, to the guy they were blaming for hiding sin. I'm going to show you how pure he is to me. He's going to be your priest. And this is a vindication right here. This is amazing. They have to take the bulls, not to the altar by themselves, but to Job, so that Job can sacrifice a burnt offering for them. This is an amazing turn of events here. This is insane. In Numbers 23, verse 1, Balaam or Balaam is probably how it's pronounced. You know who he is. Remember that weird prophet? I'll say Balaam because everyone gets upset when I say Balaam. Balaam instructed Balak or Balak to build seven altars and to prepare seven bulls and seven rams. That particular text along with chapter 42, verse 8 of Job here, seems to indicate that seven bulls and seven rams was a standard burnt offering to atone for sin. So, and this is, this is before the Mosaic law was given, right? I mean, we don't have the Mosaic law. It doesn't come in for many centuries. And so Job's friends are being told by God to offer seven and seven. And then we see that in other places in Scripture. So this is, this is what you, you know, if you wanted your sins forgiven Sarah or me or Cameron, you had to find, you had to have 14 animals. Do you know how expensive that would have been? I mean, this is serious to cover your own sin back in the day. God takes that offering and, and accepts it as a legitimate offering and He forgives you. 14 animals you're having to sacrifice to cover your sins. Be careful what you say. Of course, we have the Lamb of God, the final sacrifice. Thank God can you imagine if we had an altar up here and we had to do sacrifices? Do you think we'd have less attendance or more? Should we try it? More? We'd probably have more attendance, right? Can you imagine the bloodshed in this? I mean, this is unbelievable. You guys sinned against me. You need to get 14 animals and take them to the guy that you've been slamming, and he's going to offer them for you. This is amazing what we see here. To... Further vindicate Job, God's servant. God also told the friends that Job would offer intercessory prayers for them and that these prayers would be accepted and thus quell the anger of God so that the friends do not receive divine justice for their folly. I mean, this is absolutely amazing. It is. The guy who was covered in sores and maggots that had nothing left is now... The three self-righteous friends priest. This is, that's a vindication. God is proving to them that Job is in the right with me and you are not. And you have said over all these chapters that you think you're right with me. This is a vindication. God is essentially saying to this to them, You wrongly condemned my servant as a wicked sinner who was hiding his sins, and, and now I am making him your priest. The sacrifices and prayers he offers to me on your behalf will save you from my wrath. <laughs> this is insane. Job the sinner was actually Job the servant. Isn't that neat? 
And now God was making him Job the priest as he offered sacrifices and intercessory prayers for his sinful friends. To further stress the seriousness of their situation, God reiterated uh, the, the wicked, sinful behavior that they had exhibited once more. He, he says it again right at the, end of, at the end of verse 8 there, right? For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Eliphaz, Bildad's over. This is why you must get these animals and have him make these sacrifices and pray for you. You have not represented me properly. He has. He's your priest. Do what he tells you. Again, this is not to say that everything that the friends had said about God was incorrect. It's not true. It means they misrepresented God when they stated that He was punishing Job for his sin, which was obviously not the case, chapters 1 and 2. Verse 9, so Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Gopher, I mean Zophar the Naamathite, right? We used to call him Zophar the Gopher like two years ago. They went and did what the Lord had told them to do, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Look at that. That's a good sign, right? That's a good sign. Uh, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they fully obeyed the Lord's instruction, their, the correction to them, and they did exactly as God commanded. They went and got the animals, and they, they brought the, the animals to Job to be offered up for them. Job offered them up, and, 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 and they said, Job, you need to pray for us, and Job prayed for them. As a result, the text says the Lord accepted Job's prayer and restored these three friends, not only to himself because they had sinned against God, but God also in his mercy, in his grace, reconciled them to Job by reestablishing Job's spiritual position. Job was the better man, in a sense, although there's really no such thing as the better man, but he was the really, truly righteous man. He was the godly, blameless man that we are told up in the front first two chapters. And here he is exercising some level of spiritual leadership to the friends who thought they had it all together. It's just amazing. And, and this caused the friends to probably think and say, man, we are so sorry for saying to you the things that we've said to you. We did not treat you right. We were wrong. You were right the whole time. Will you please forgive us? What would you do if this happened to you? Would you forgive your friends? Or would you hold it against them and let them stew in that? Job didn't let them stew in it. He did exactly what they asked him to do. He made the offering. He, he could have said, I'm not sacrificing anything for you. I'm not praying for you. I'm praying for you, but believe me, you don't want to hear my prayer. God, strike them down, take them away. I mean, how would you respond to being treated like this? Job shows that he's a merciful man by obeying the instruction of God and taking care of these spiritual men's position. This is a, a really a, a amazing thing happening here. So that is the reconciliation. Number three, Job's restoration, verses 10 to 17, the rest of the text. We'll pick it up in verse 10. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Wow. Okay. So this is obviously a, a turning point for Job, I think, in temporal ways. The turning point, the spiritual turning point already happened, we saw in his repentance just a few verses ago. But this is a temporal turning point where he kind of gets back what he had before, right? And it's after, notice the detail, it's after he prayed for his friends. After he did that, the Lord made him prosperous again and gave him twice as much as he had before. God restored Job's fortune and family to him. 
Now, I think the timing is very interesting here, right? He prays for his friends, and then he's restored. He wasn't restored right after he repented, right? Think of the timing here. He is restored after he prays for his friends. Now, the last thing I want to do is layer meaning into the text. We're not told anything about We're given the timeline, but we're not told any detail about it, so we don't want to read meaning into the text. But I still think it's interesting. I still think it's interesting. Could there be a connection between Job praying for his friends and the return of his prosperity? Could there? During his ordeal, Job prayed primarily for himself. He prayed very selfishly, and I think it's understandable, right? He prayed for God to end his pain by ending his life. Just kill me now, God. Job 6, chapter 6, verses 8 and 9. He prayed for God to stop looking away from him. You're, you're looking away and not paying attention to me, he prayed. And he prayed for God to, if it was some kind of past transgression or iniquity, something in the past, he said, God, just stop looking away, look at me and forgive those sins so that I can be restored. Job chapter 7, verses 19 to 21. He prayed for an arbiter to mediate between him and God. Job chapter 9, verses 33 to 35. He prayed for God to explain why he, Job, was being condemned and contended against and oppressed. Job chapter 10, verses 2 to 3. So a lot of Job's prayers were for himself. Do we not pray for ourselves when we're in the midst of affliction? Of course we do. When you're sick and don't feel well, do you pray for yourself? Of course you do. When a loved one is suffering, you, you, know, you pray for them. I mean, come on. So I, I, I'm not hammering him for this. I, I can understand why he did what he did here. But the moment that he focuses on others, boom, he is restored. Is there a connection there? I don't know. What I do know is that God wants His people to be others-minded. I do know that. Whether you want to draw that from this text or not is fine. It's probably not the right application, but this is a reality. Well, what we see is Job being others-minded, then we see Job being restored. Is there a connection? I don't know. I don't even think so. But there is a prevailing truth here, and that is that God wants His people to be others-minded before they're self-minded. Philippians 2.3 says, Do Nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. I, I, when, I, when I think of Keith I have to, and, and Elsa, I have to think of them as being more significant and important than myself. I have to do the same thing with Brian. This is not easy because I am the most selfish person I know. And I think you would admit that about yourself, hopefully. If not, you probably don't think that you have sin and you're violating 1 John. But right, we, we're usually primarily focused on ourselves. But as Christians, we are called by God and even equipped through the ministry and power of the Spirit on the inside of us to consider others greater than ourselves. This is what we are called to do. Selfishness, in other words, selfishness is not something that God blesses. It's not. It comes from pride, and God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, James 4, 6. We may go through trials and we may end up with tremendous needs as Job did, but it is essential that we do not forget about others. That is essential, especially when it comes to what? Our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Here, here's an idea here for us. This would be practicing the Philippians text and other texts that tell us to be others-minded. If, if you've set aside 10 minutes to pray, okay? Five minutes, ten minutes to pray. Let's say ten minutes because that's what I did the math on. If I do five minutes, I'm not going to know the math here. You set aside ten minutes to pray. Do this. 
spend one minute on yourself. One minute on yourself, spend four minutes on others, and spend five minutes praising and thanking God for His goodness. But what do our prayers usually look like, a 10-minute prayer? Nine minutes on me, nine minutes and 55 seconds on me, and five seconds praising God for His goodness. Right? This is what usually happens. That's not being others-minded. Being others-minded means having others on your mind and considering them greater and better than you or, 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 or something. And, and you just direct that energy and that prayer and that focus on others. If you're in marriage, you have to do this with your spouse pretty much all the time. You need to take this and translate it into all your other relationships. If you're not married, you just need to do it with everyone. Is that the point of the text? No. Is there a connection between him praying for his friends and his restoration? Maybe. I don't know. I can't tell you. No commentary said anything about that. But there is the simple truth that we were to be others-minded. And Job did pray for his friends. And let me tell you something right now, playing back off what I said a moment ago. It is not easy to aim positive prayer toward those who have been injuring you, is it? No. You see the humility and godliness of Job here? This guy is outstanding. He, he's, I'm supposed to strive to be like Jesus, but I tell you what, second to him, let's make it Job. It's just, it just mind-boggling. Be others-minded. That is a secondary lesson we can draw from this text right here. Pray 10 minutes, spend a minute on yourself, spend a bunch of time on others, and spend the most time thanking God for His goodness and blessings. Now let's move into verse 11. This is another long verse. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house, and they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. Stop there. Wow, this is really amazing. So the first to welcome Job to his restored state were his siblings and friends. Now, I would say that this particular text is both sensational, like, wow, so cool, and it's also sad. It's sad. Because the first thing that comes to mind is where were they when he was suffering? Why did they wait till he was restored to come to him? It could be that in the sovereign will and plan of God that Job experienced a unilateral abandonment, right? He lost all his wealth. He lost his children. Essentially, he lost everything but his wife, including his other relatives, even his man and maid servants. Everyone essentially abandoned him. So that was probably the plan of God. But on the human side of it, I'm sitting there thinking, where were the comforters and sympathizers during the suffering, and why is it that they show up when he's restored? That sounds almost like the friend that, like, when you run out of money, he's not your friend anymore, and you come back into money, all of a sudden he's your friend again? I, I, I'm sorry, I, I need to be careful not to read anything into the text because I think this is a, a moment of jubilee and celebration for Job. This is not something that we're supposed to look at pessimistically like I am right now. Forgive me, Lord, but this happens in this human nature. It happens, doesn't it? And it's, it's kind of sad when that happens. It's sensational and it's sad. It's sensational in that everyone Job loved returned to him. It's sad that they left him in the first place. 
Job lamented this total abandonment in chapter 19, verses 13 to 15. He said it this way. He's, he's, he's weeping when he says this because he needs people, the people that he loves in his life during this affliction. He needs them just as we need them when we're going through things and even when we're not going through things. But he says this, my brothers are far from me, my relatives have failed me, my friends have forgotten me, and my servants count me as a stranger, as a foreigner. That's a sad statement. Just when he needs these people the most, they walk away. How sad. And why did they walk away? It was probably God's sovereign plan and will that they do that. But I can tell you this. They did it of their own volition. God didn't make them walk away. They did it on their own. Because as soon as they figured out, or as soon as they thought that he had hidden sin in his life and he was under judgment, they said, we got to get out of here. We can't be associated with this guy. This was of their own choice, of their own volition. But in the grand scheme of things, it was God's plan for a total abandonment. And it's still sad to me that he was left. No one in the church should be alone unless it's a disciplinary matter, and they have to be. We know that's not the case for Job. He was a righteous, blameless man, chapters 1 and 2. It's the perception of what he was. Oh, he's got to be hiding sin, and he's under the judgment of God. Therefore, the friends and family walk away. How sad. It's sad. It is sad. The man loses his wealth, children, and health, and the response from his closest relatives was, by. And then they return just as soon as his fortunes are restored to him. Oh, man, it's challenging for me. And there is a lesson there for us. Is abandoning a person whom we think is hiding sin a right response? Because that's what the relatives and friends did. Is walking away from them and leaving them high and dry in their suffering affliction, is that a right response? No. No. We are to, anytime there's a mention of sin or we think there's a sin issue, we go to Matthew 18. We follow what the Bible has prescribed for church discipline. We don't assume something and then based on that assumption, bail and leave them cold. We don't. We don't do what the friends and family did. They were wrong about him, weren't they? He was not hiding sin, nor was he under the judgment of God. They're leaving him was frivolous and foolish because that, that wasn't true about him. How often do we make these assumptions about people and then draw distance or do whatever it is that we're doing? It's a wrong response. This is not how we respond. We follow Matthew 18. It lays out church discipline. If multiple witnesses can show that a person is sinning, if they have evidence of this, if they've seen that, then we take that person who is sinning or hiding sin, we take them through the steps of Matthew 18. We follow it. Why? To put the hammer on them? No, to hopefully, in, in God's grace and mercy and the power of the Spirit, to lead them to repentance and restoration. That's what we're supposed to do. Now, when we combine the instructions of Matthew 18 with the instructions we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 13, the end result could be excommunication, which really usually is the removal of an unrepentant person from the congregation. That is a kind of disassociation, but you have followed the right steps. You are doing it the way God prescribed 
which will always, whenever we do God's will and God's word, it will always produce the right or best result. There could be a disassociation there. The, the, the text tells us to expel the immoral brother or sister from the congregation. You can't have anything to do with them. You're handing them over to Satan. But nobody followed anything like this in the text. They just assumed he was sinning and bounced. You've got to follow the process. And we have to give them some grace here because they didn't know about this process. What his friends and family did was wrong. But we should rejoice and be glad that they did eventually return to him, right? And they did it after they learned about his, you know, after they learned about his repentance, which wasn't over the sin they thought it was over, after they learned about his vindication, after they began to witness his restoration unto God and unto his initial friends there, they started coming back. Family started coming back. So I'm sad that they left in the first place, but I'm very glad that they came back. And I think the way Job saw it was, I'm glad you're back because he just wanted his friends and family in his life, even if it wasn't the right way to go about it. And then when they returned, it says they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that who brought on him? The devil? No, it says all the evil the Lord brought on him. Even the family and friends understood the sovereignty of God over all these matters. They know at the end of the day that the devil doesn't operate apart from God and that God ordains or doesn't ordain for things to transpire. So they recognized that, that at, the, at the top of the food chain here, God was in charge and had allowed these things and even ordained these things to happen. And not only did they sympathize and comfort Job, which I wish they'd done during his ordeal, but then again, that would change the whole dynamic of the book. They did come and they did sympathize and comfort him. They even brought him some gifts, right? Pieces of money, rings of gold. What was God doing here? He was using his friends and family to restore his riches. That's what God is doing here. <laughs> this is a vindication of Job to even his friends and family. They thought he was hiding sin. Now they've come back to him and they're giving him gifts, which is a restoration of his wealth. God is vindicating Job at every level here. I love it. I love it. I wonder if the friends and family were saying to themselves and even to Job, we should have never left you in the first place. We're so sorry we abandoned you. You were right. You, you, were, you were speaking the truth. It, it could have happened. We don't have it here, but it could have happened. I hope it happened. Verse 12, And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys. Wow. At the beginning, Job had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys. Job chapter 1, verse 3. But at the end here, God gave him a double portion of all these animals, 14,000, 6,000, 1,000, and 1,000. God blessed and doubled Job's livestock. Now, this much livestock in this day, you were a multimillionaire. The original numbers that he had, he was a multimillionaire. So now he's, right, he's, he's, I don't know if he's musk level, but he was a very, very, very wealthy man. And the way that you had wealth in those days was by owning land, which is still true of today, and owning livestock. So God made him twice as wealthy as he was before. This is amazing. Verses 13 to 14. Uh, it says this, Job had also seven sons and three daughters, and he called them, and he called them the name of the first daughter, uh, Jem, I think it's Jemima, and the name of the second, uh, Kezia, I'll give you a proper pronunciation in a second, and the name of the third, Karen Hapok. She was a Karen. <laughs> That's funny. 
She wasn't a Karen. She was actually really good. So out of love for his servant, God not only restores his wealth and brings him into a double portion of wealth, he restores his family to him, right? He gave him 10 children, the exact number and, and number of genders he had before, seven boys and three girls, Job chapter 1, verse 2. Now, in antiquity, I said this a long time ago in chapter 1, in the old days, in antiquity, having seven boys, three girls, that was the ideal family, the ideal amount of children. So, to me, it's like, I could never afford this grocery bill. That would be a curse. <laughs> it's almost that way with three big guys. But this is the, yeah, you know what I'm saying, and you got little guys, and you got one on the way, so <laughs> I can't wait to make fun of Cameron. Um, Literally here, this is like the ideal family spread right here. You got a wife, you got these kids, boys, you got girls, and you got more boys, which were usually the inheritors, those who would inherit. So this is really, really neat what's happening here. Now, here's a detail that we don't see in chapter 1, verse 2. You don't see the names of any of his children in chapter 1, but here you do. And there is a reason for that, which I think is just amazing. None of his children are given names. They all had names, but the names are not given in chapter 1, but they are here in verse 14. Job called his first daughter, here's the proper pronunciation, Yemima. The J is silent. It sounds like a Y. Yemima. Yemima. Her name means daylight. After spending many, many, many days and nights in dark affliction, Job gives his first daughter the name Daylight. Isn't that cool? You see, back then, names had meaning. I think they still do today. Philip means lover of horses. I, I, don't, I know. Spencer Cooper lets me know that every time I talk to him, which is like once a year. He's like, hey, lover of horses. <laughs> it's like, yeah, Mr. Ed, you know. Back then, names were significant. He names his daughter after coming through the darkest time of his life, Daylight. How cool is that? Yemima, daylight. I love that. He calls his second daughter, it's actually pronounced Cassia. The K sounds like a C and the Z sounds like an S. Cassia. Her name means fragrance. Fragrance, like a lovely fragrance. After spending many, many days and nights smelling the stench of his own rotten flesh, he names his second-born girl fragrance or lovely fragrance. Isn't that cool? And then Job called his third daughter, it's uh, Karen Hapuk. Karen Hapuk. Her name means horn, which was in the Old Testament the symbol of one's might, a mighty horn. Okay, and I don't know if it's this kind of horn that you blow into. I think it's like a bull's horn or something like that, or maybe a rhino's horn. But it is the symbol of one's strength and might. After spending many, many days and nights emaciated, right? I mean, he had no, he just had flesh over bones because he wasn't eating. After spending many, many days and nights in this incredibly weakened, emaciated state, barely enough strength to carry on, he names his third born girl horn, which means strength. My strength is what it means. Isn't that beautiful? These daughters were basically a 
a lifetime's worth of reminder of what he had gone through and the blessings that God restored to him. Daylight, fragrance, and strength. Very, very cool. Verse 15, And in the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. Okay, these girls were lookers, boy. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. Nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters. And I think those names represent their inward and exterior beauty as well. But there was just no other gals out there that were as strikingly beautiful internally and externally. Job was a, a blessed, blessed man. He probably had to fight off those dumb teenage boys. Get out of here. And he granted these girls, these daughters, an inheritance along with the brothers, which was very rare. You never saw this. This is contrasted with what we see in Numbers 27, verse 8, which called for an inheritance to be given to daughters only when there were no sons. You know, the, the goal of every ancient Jewish man and in many other cultures was to have sons so they could carry on the family name and get the inheritance when you were stuck with ten daughters, it was wonderful. You had all these girls. You probably had ten shotguns, one for each one, right? Kelly knows what I'm talking about. You got these dumb boys out there. But you didn't have an heir. You remember the struggle with Abraham and Sarah? They wanted a son because they wanted an heir, and they were given one, right? Isaac. So the whole goal was to have sons so you'd have many heirs. And, and, and so you could give that inheritance to those boys. And here, Job loved his daughters so much. He gave them these awesome names, and he includes them in his will, which was unheard of when you had sons. What does this teach us about Job? He was generous. He was incredibly generous. This is not something that he had to do, but it is something that he did. It is a gesture of his kindness. It is a gesture of his generosity, the generosity in his heart. This guy had a full fledged change of heart across the board. Now let's go to the last two verses. Verses 16 and 17, and after this, Job lived 140 years, and he saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations, and Job died an old man full of days. After his repentance and restoration, Job lived another 140 years. This puts his total lifespan at around 200 years since his troubles began around between 60 and 70 years old. He was 70. Can you imagine that? He was about 70 years old when all this affliction hit him. So now he's, you know, he's about 200 years old when he passes away. Now, this long lifespan seems, you know, just unrealistic to us, but that's not how it was back during the patriarchal time or era. I mean, people, the patriarchs in particular, lived quite a while. I think. Abraham was a contemporary living in the same era as Job, and he made it to 175. So, uh, you know, they weren't living in 900 years like in the early part of Genesis, but they still lived up in upwards of 200 years back then. Of course, over time, lifespans shorten. So he makes it up to about 200 years old. In other words, he lives long enough to see his children, his grandchildren, his great-grandchildren, and his even greater grandchildren, a total of four generations. When he died, he died an, an old man full of days. That was also the goal in antiquity, was to live a long, prosperous life. And he did that. Uh, this long, full life was an expression of God's love and goodness toward Job as he was allowed to live many years with his new family and wealth. Closing. That's it, man. That's the book of Job. Sovereign suffering. Done. Now, what might we take away from this final chapter? 
what can we apply? I mean, I'm sure we've applied several things, but what, what should we walk away with from this final chapter? And really, in some regards, the whole book, but I'd say just this chapter. Now, here's the deal. Some pastors suggest that it was Job's faithfulness that earned him these blessings from God in the end. Right? You know, so, so Job was faithful through his whole ordeal, and then, and then at the end of this whole ordeal, God rewards his faithfulness with a double portion of livestock, new children, a long life, and all that. They, they really tie all of it to Job's faithfulness. And to be honest with you, I absolutely hate this interpretation. Why? Because it's going to drive people to try to earn their way with God. It's the wrong way to look at the text. All right? Think of it this way. Think of it logically. Was Job faithful before the affliction came? He was blameless and righteous, and his affliction came. In other words, it wasn't unfaithfulness from Job that brought about his affliction. So it couldn't be faithfulness that brought about the second round of blessing. The fact of the matter is, in the book of Job, especially in this last chapter, Job's faithfulness has nothing to do with it. I am not telling you that Job's faithfulness is not important or that it's unimportant. It is. Our, our faithfulness is important. It is. We want to be faithful to our Lord. But I'm telling you today, boldly, and I don't care, it's not his faithfulness that brought him into that mess or his unfaithfulness that brought him into that mess, and it's not his faithfulness that brought him into the blessing. It doesn't have, have nothing to do with his faithfulness. He was faithful all the time. It was, it's irrelevant. Maybe his faithfulness was something that God considered, and that's why God considered him for the test in the, to begin with. It could be that, but it's not, it's not faithfulness that brought him into these blessings. When we start talking like that, that sounds like charismania. That sounds like health and wealth, doesn't it? Well, the more faithful you are, the more blessing God is going to bring into your life. If, 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 let me tell you something right now. If we walk away from this chapter in the book of Job with that mindset, we have failed the entire book. We have missed the whole point of the book. That is not the application. That is a ridiculous application because it will inspire in us earning. Now, I will tell you that God does reward faithfulness, but that's not what we're talking about in this text or in this book. What we are seeing here is not an example of Job's faithfulness being rewarded. We are seeing an example of God's faithfulness to His servant. That's the biggest thing to take away from the book of Job in this chapter. That's what you are reading. That's what you are studying. What Job lost in the beginning, God restored to him in the end. What we lose for Christ's sake, God shall restore more to us, either in the church and through the church, and certainly in the life to come. You see, God is faithful, and He loves His people. And when His people experiences, experience losses for His sake, He will give back to you what you lose. Whether it be in this life, I, we don't know. It'll certainly be in the next life. And sometimes God gives, does give back to us in this life, but it's not temporal blessings that He gives to us. It's spiritual growth. It's protection. It's some other kind of blessing. Who knows what it's going to be? So, so what Job lost, he regained in the end. What we lose for the sake of Christ, God shall restore to us, either in the church 
or in the life to come. Mark 10, 29 to 30 illustrates this perfectly. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus is saying, whatever you lose, you will gain back a hundredfold in the church. You may lose a loved one, but you'll gain a lot of loved ones in the church. Or you have eternal life, you'll have that and you'll gain in that mode. Whatever you lose for me, I will give back to you a hundredfold. That is a promise of God. And, and we see that promise in a really, really where, a way, all the way back in antiquity with Job, which is the oldest book of the Bible, we see it carried out. Because Job was righteous, he suffered many, many losses. And Job was given and returned the things that he had lost in the end. That's the lesson. God is faithful. God is faithful. So that's the, that's the great takeaway. God is faithful to His people. This book demonstrates this brilliantly. So my encouragement to you is to take joy in knowing that God shall bless, restore, and vindicate us in His perfect timing. He surely will, just as He did for Job. And why is that? Well, it's obviously all because of Jesus. That's why. It's all to Jesus we owe, right? Our sins had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. It's because of Jesus that we have these promises. Every promise that God has given to His people is yes and amen in Jesus. What you lose, you will regain, either in this life or in the life to come. See that in the book of Job and live a daring, bold, sacrificial life for Christ, knowing that He loves you, knowing that He has you, knowing that He will preserve your faith, knowing that He will bring you across the finish line, and knowing that all your suffering is building up for you an eternal weight of glory. God repays His people. He does in this life, in the life to come. So be willing to make sacrifices, be willing to suffer losses for Christ. And not just because you'll get back what you lose or more so, but because you love Christ and He has set the prime example for you in His own sacrifice. Nobody's given more than Christ. Why, why wouldn't we give Him back our lives and our possessions and whatever it is that we have, that we would lay them all at the foot of the cross and say, use them as, as you want. And I'm not afraid of losing the things that I have because I know that you're a good God and that, you know, you will replace what I lose. Whether it be in this life, I don't know, but it will certainly be in the next life. You don't have to worry about your stuff because God has you. And He is the giver of all good things. And He will continue to take care of us. So let's be daring. May we pursue greater faithfulness unto our God. Not because we want something from Him, but because He is faithful and because His steadfast love endures forever and ever and ever. Psalm 118, verse 1. Amen?